Amen. Uh, This summer we are taking a look at different places in the Bible, talking about the mission of the church toward helping the poor and the needy. In other words, the mission of compassion and generosity and justice uh, in the world. And so we're going to take a number of different places from the Bible, kind of make a survey through the scriptures to see how this is a consistent teaching of the Bible from beginning to end. And so today we're in the prophets who have a lot, a lot, a lot to say about a call uh, to mercy and justice and compassion for the poor and the needy. So if you have a Bible and you want to follow along with me, you can. We're going to look at two different prophetic passages, one from Isaiah chapter 1, and then a very, very famous passage of Scripture that even if you're not a Christian, you might even might be familiar with from Micah 6, verses 6 through 8, and you'll see the similarities in those two passages uh, together. So let's read together Isaiah 10, Isaiah 1, 10 through 20, Micah 6, 6 through 8. Okay? Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats when you come before me. Who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon. And Sabbath, in the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity or in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord is spoken. And then Micah 6, 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And the prophet answers, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is God's word. We've been saying for a number of weeks, kind of meditating on the passage of Scripture in Matthew 25 uh, that we looked at a number of weeks ago, that the, the, the distinguishing mark of true Christian faith is a life of radical generosity and mercy towards the poor and the needy. And that this is what ultimately Jesus is going to be inspecting our lives to look for on the Day of Judgment. And the reason, we've said again, over and over again, but it bears repeating one more time, is that the reason that the distinguishing mark of true Christians is their love for and care for the poor and the needy is that when a Christian sees somebody who's poor, they know they're looking in a mirror. In other words, the more you come to understand the doctrine of justification by faith, the more you will begin to live and do justice. You'll begin to love. There's a necessary and an inseparable connection connection between these two. 
So, you know, I'm in right relationship with God, not because he looked at me and considered me an asset, this idea of justification, right? I was morally bankrupt, the scripture teaches, and Jesus paid the debt of my sin. I was poor, and he impoverished himself to provide for me. That's the gospel. And the more we see that, the more we come to understand exactly how that whole thing works, the more we as his people embrace our poverty of spirit before him, right? I have nothing to give. I have nothing to bring. And we see his radical generosity towards us in the gospel, then the more we will become people who are generous. I mean, that's the connection between justification and a life of justice. And therefore, the distinguishing mark of a true Christian is this. It's a person who really gets the gospel is a person who lives a life of radical generosity and care for and mercy towards people, especially the poor and the needy. You see that here very clearly in this passage, these, these two passages. And so four things this morning I want us to see as we kind of walk through these verses together. There's a problem that both Micah and Isaiah deal with. How do you come before the Lord? What do you bring with you when you come before the Lord? How do you get back, you know, how do you get into the presence of God? So there's a problem. Then we see the mistake they make. Thirdly, we see the correction that the prophets offer. And so there's a call to repentance in light of the mistake that has been made. And then fourthly, you see the motivation or how it is that you find the heart and the energy to do what is good and not to make the mistake that the Israelites were making that the prophets were having to deal with here. So those four things, the problem, the mistake, the correction, and then finally the motivation, all of that in these verses, and we'll just walk through it together. Okay, first the problem. It's right here uh, in both Isaiah and Micah. Look at Isaiah one twelve, and then Micah 6.6, 6, and it's just this: that what, what the prophets are pondering. With what shall I come before the Lord, they say. Now, to come before the Lord means to come into his presence. So it's the imagery of a servant who's coming before his king, his ruler, his sovereign. What do I bring with me? You know, how do I come in and be found pleasing to him? And this is the fundamental human problem. How do you get standing with God? How do you stand in the presence of a holy God and not be condemned? What do you bring? I mean, what, what do you have to do? You know, how do you come in? And if you're not a Christian or if you're new to Christianity, okay, I want you to understand what the Bible teaches on this point. I mean, I want you to see what's going on here. The Bible, the story the Bible's telling is that we were created to walk and talk with God. And that there was a time when a man and a woman actually walked with him in his royal garden and talked to him face to face. They experienced an intimacy with him that we can hardly really even fathom, and an access of being available and be able to come into his very presence. But we learn from this story that they rebelled against him and refused to live under his authority, and so he punished them by kicking him out of his garden, you know, pushing him away from his presence. And then what we're told there in Genesis is that, is that God posted two angels at the gate to the garden armed with flaming swords to make sure that the man and the woman couldn't get back in. And what the story teaches us is just this, that because of our sin, we've been alienated from God. The way to God is barred. We need him the way the flower needs the sun, but we've lost him. We can't can't live without him, and yet we've, we've lost him. We're on the outside. We're alienated from him. And so Paul writing to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2, 3, calls us children of wrath. In other words, we can't stand before him. We can't come before him. I mean, we have no leg to stand on. Our sin condemns us. We are under his wrath and his curse, the catechism teaches us. And that's the fundamental human problem. We've lost God. We're separated from him. We're on the outside. 
So how do we get back in? How do we, how do we regain what's been lost and come back in? That's the question in Micah. That's, that's the question in Micah's question with what shall I come before the Lord? It's what Isaiah is dealing with too. And so there's the problem. How do I get in? What do I have to do? What, what can I do? What do I have to be that will gain me? What offering, what present, what tribute do I have to bring that will gain me access and get me back in? So there's the problem, okay? But there's a mistake here too. And the mistake is just this. If you follow along, there seems to be a religious impulse in humanity that goes something like this. Okay, if I'm going to get back in, then it will be because I do something that earns or merits me access. In other words, it's up to me to solve the problem, okay? And that's what, that's what all of the religious systems of the world offer, whether it's Hinduism or Buddhism or Judaism or even religious forms of Christianity or whatever it might be, tribal religions. They offer a way back in, you know, follow the rules, right? Perform the right ceremonies and rituals. Do, do everything you're supposed to do and appease the God. And if you do everything right and if you bring the right offering to him, then you can come back in. But I want you to see it's not just a modern religious impulse, it's also part of the ancient myths and stories. So, for example, the story might go like this, right? There's a hero who has offended a god in some way, or he loves a maiden who has offended one of the gods in a certain way. And so, in order to appease the god, the god says, well, I'm going you know, to kill you, or I demand the life of this woman you love. And so, in order to appease the god and gain favor or avert disaster, as it might be, the hero has to go on some kind of a quest. Uh, he has to accomplish some kind of task or mission, right? And then bring a gift or a present back to the God. And if he's successful in doing this, then the God would be appeased and the hero or the woman he loves would be safe. You know these kinds of stories, right? So this is what Micah and Isaiah are contemplating. Micah says, with what shall I come before the Lord? In other words, another way of saying, what does God require of me? What does he, what does he want from me? What do I have to do to appease him? What do I have to bring? What gift, what offering does he, you know, require of me in order for me to gain his favor? How do I get back in? How do I regain what's lost? And so Micah begins to go through a list of possible solutions. It's just great. Look there at verses 6 and 7. He says, okay, offerings, right? Verse 6, calves. And then he thinks, no, you know, that couldn't possibly do it. Okay, well, what about thousands of rams? And so we're upping the ante, right? He says, no, not even that would be enough. Well, what about ten thousands of rivers of oil. And so he's continuing to grope and grasp for what, you know, what would possibly be enough that would appease uh, the God who is vengeful and wrathful against me. Ten thousands of rivers of oil, which is a metaphor. I mean, you know, that's not even possible. But he says, no, not even, not even that. There's, not even, there's nothing I could possibly bring to God that would cause him to accept me. There's no offering that could satisfy his demands. And then he goes, I mean, it's kind of it really kind of rubs you the wrong way. But even in verse 7 there, he says, what about, what about my firstborn? Not even my firstborn son, which was a common practice of the day, by the way, of trying to appease the God. You give him the most valuable thing you could possibly imagine, your child. And somehow that would be a gift worthy of the God looking upon you in favor. But Micah says, no, no, not even that. See, there's no offering, there's no... No sacrifice, no religious commitment that could ever give us standing with God. Isaiah says it this way in verse 11. The Lord says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifice? They're vain, he says. They're worthless. They don't count. And then, he, uh, and then, then Isaiah begins to pick up this idea in verses 13 and 14, if you look up there. And he begins to kind of 
allow his imagination to get rolling too. He says, you know, he, offer, he, he adds offer, to offerings religious ceremonies. He says new moons and Sabbaths and convocations and assemblies and feasts, right? In other words, special ceremonies and religious services. But again, at the end of that list, okay, even those things don't give you standing with God. Gifts and offerings, rituals and ceremonies and spiritual commitments, God's not satisfied with any of them. <laughs> I mean, you can't try to come before him with those things. So we're really being boxed in here, aren't we? Now let me try to apply this. If you go back to Micah's question, what, with what shall I come before the Lord? In other words, what does God require of us? I mean, how do you answer that question? How would you, or how would, how would the typical you know, evangelical person, how would we typically answer that question? And most of us, if we're honest, we would say we believe that Christianity is fundamentally about going to church and following the rules and you know, showing up on Sundays and taking your place in your pew and dropping some money in the, the offering plate when it comes around. In other words, what does God require, right? He requires attendance at religious services and offerings and sacrifices and religious commitments, these sorts of things. But both Micah and Isaiah say, no, that's not right. That's me and you trying to solve the problem. Right? That's me trying to work my way back into God's favor with some kind of offering or some kind of, you know, attendance at a service or, or whatever it might be, and that's not going to work. That's the mistake. See, that's the mistake the prophets are saying. Both Micah and Isaiah say that's not how it works, that no amount of sacrifice, no amount of religious commitment or good works can make you right with God. It's a work that God must do. It's a work that God must do. And so thirdly, we see the correction here in these verses then. And here's where the passage really calls us to repentance. You see, both Micah and Isaiah understand that if what has been lost because of sin is to be regained, it will be because of something God does and not something that we do. In other words, the solution to this problem is not a religious solution. It's a gospel solution, and that's the correction. I look here. Both the prophets hint at the gospel here. So Isaiah in verse 18, if you look there. Isaiah, uh, the Lord says through Isaiah, Come, let's reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become wool. And See, this is what we need. This is what we need. Not to perform some heroic feat that will earn us God's favor. Not to bring him some sort of offering that he will be pleased with. We need him to cleanse us. We need him to wipe our sins away. And that's what he promises to do. And it's even better in Micah 7, in our assurance of pardon, which we read a few minutes ago, just, I mean, absolutely, I mean, a flooring, a just beautiful, mind-boggling passage in Micah 7 where Micah is praying and worshiping God, and he says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity forever and passing over transgression? He does not retain his anger forever. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot, and he will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Is that good news? I mean, that's an amen moment, right? I mean, that is a, you know... I mean, he will remember our sins no more, the scripture says. And that's what we need. That, we need God to come and tread our sins underfoot and cast, our, cast them into the depths of the sea. And this is exactly what God has done in the gospel. <laughs> right? Read those passages in light of the entire revelation of the scripture about what God has done in Jesus. God can, in fact, and does pass over our transgressions because he's dealt with them in Jesus. He does not tread, treat us as our sins deserve. 
His anger doesn't settle upon our lives, the Bible teaches us. We are no longer children of wrath if our faith is in Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation for us because the wrath of God stored up against sin has been poured out upon Jesus. He has cast our sins into the depths of the sea because Jesus was cast into the depth of hell. He remembers our sins no more because in Jesus he counted every one. You see, this is the gospel dynamic. And so, to say again what we've been saying for the last couple of weeks, if you're still trying, okay, here's where, here's where this works out. If you're still trying to come before God with your offerings and your sacrifices and your spiritual commitments or whatever it might be, if you're still trying to earn your way back in by making uh, up for your mistakes with good works, then what the prophets are helping you see and helping me see here is that one of the things that's going to begin to happen, and I'm going to have to explain this, one of the things that's going to happen is there's going to, it's going to create a disconnect between the, the vertical and the horizontal aspects of the Christian life in you. Okay? Now, do you know what I mean? When I say vertical, I mean just this. I mean faith. My, in other words, my relationship with God, the love of God for me in Christ Jesus. And then horizontal means love, you know, my, my, my attitude, my posture toward other people, my commitment to really loving other people well. So there's two commands in the Bible. There's the faith command, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. The love command, love your neighbor as yourself, and they always go together. There's never one without the other in the Bible. Faith proves itself in love, the scripture. And we've been saying this, you know, we've been saying this over and over again. Faith proves itself in a life of love, especially towards the poor and the needy. In other words, the way you know you have faith, the way you know you're not trying to make, you know, you've, you've given up, you've despaired of ever being able to come up with anything that's going to get you back into God's presence, and you've turned to Jesus and arresting him, the way you know you've done that is that you love. I mean, the indictment that both Micah and Isaiah offer is just this, is that if you claim to have faith, right, offerings, sacrifices, religious commitments, all these things, if, if you claim to have faith, but you have no love, no justice, no mercy, no humility, then it's not real faith. It's just religion. You don't believe the gospel. It's a sign that you're not resting in Jesus. I mean, the way you know you're resting in Jesus is that your heart has been melted by the gospel to such a degree that it's made you a person who is kind and compassionate and generous, especially towards those who are most vulnerable, like the widows and the orphans and the aliens. Now, let me give you an example of this that is completely absurd uh, and hyperbolic, okay? Completely absurd. But, in, but intentionally absurd to make a point. Do you understand what I'm saying? Uh, I'm reading a book about how the church should engage, engage culture, and in the book, the author tells the story of a friend who interviewed a German Christian who had served in Hitler's Third Reich. And in, in the interview, the man uh, begins to tell a story of, uh, of how he proudly begins to recount the story of how there was a time where his commanding officer had, had ordered him to attend a dance. But since dancing was against his religious convictions, he had refused to go and, you know, to the dance at great peril to himself personally. <laughs> so the author's reflecting on this. He says, here's a man uh, who willingly participated in the attempted extermination of an entire race of people, which involved you know, unimaginable cruelty and corruption, but somehow that was not a matter of conscience for him. What was a matter of conscience for him was whether or not he was able to go to the dance. Isn't that flooring? And this is what both Mike and Isaiah are warning about. See, if you come to church 
and worship God vertically, right? Vertical. But you're mean and hypercritical to others or of others. In other words, there's a dysfunction horizontal. The vertical has not yet kind of made its way into the horizontal dynamic and aspect of your lives. Maybe you're not really a Christian. I mean, if you tithe faithfully, right? I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to do what God asks me to do, you know, vertically. But you're not filled with compassion for those who are in need. In other words, on the horizontal level. You're just doing it to build a spiritual resume for yourself. Then maybe, maybe you're not really a Christian. And this is the correction. See, this is the correction. The prophets are pushing faith out in, you know, into the horizontal dynamics and, and aspects of our lives. They're saying, not sacrifices, but generosity. Not religious ceremony, but mercy towards the need, needy and the poor. Look at how, what Isaiah says in verse 17. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. I mean, that's what God wants. That's the person that can come before him. Not because doing justice makes you righteous, but because it's evidence of faith in Jesus and resting in him, working its way out in love. It's evidence of a heart that has been supernaturally transformed by God's grace. Uh, Just an illustration of this. If you look at verse 10, the prophet addresses Israel, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. And that, it's just all the commentators pick up on this and they say, look what he's doing. He's saying, he's addressing Israel and he's calling them Sodom. And for an Israelite, that would have been like the most offensive thing you could possibly do because in the Bible, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, right, was the quintessential story of sin and, and just wickedness and depravity and whatever it might be. And God is saying to his people, you have come, become just as depraved, just as wicked, just as foot filled with sin and iniquity as that ancient city that you look at with such contempt. But if I was to ask you, what was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? How would you answer that question? See, most of us, we look back on that story and we know, you know, what was going on there and why the, 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 the wrath of God fell. But if we're not careful, typically the way we would answer that question, what is the sin of Sodom that made it kind of the, the case, you know, biblically for iniquity and rebellion against God and all this kind of, we would say probably, you know, sexual immorality or homosexuality or some sort of thing like this. The problem is, is that in Ezekiel 16 verse 49 The Lord himself weighs in. He says, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. And buckle your seatbelt. Okay? She had pride, excess, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. That is an absolute condemnation of the culture we live in. And he looks at Israel and he says, you need to hear the word of the Lord, Sodom. You need to give ear to the teachings of your God, Gomorrah, so that you are not guilty of the same sin that they were. And so Micah says, Micah offers this correction, and this is where we just need, we're kind of running out of time, but we need to part for a few minutes. And Micah just offers this correction in, in verse 8, in this very famous verse. And he says, he has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. It's this great summary statement of what Micah and the rest of the prophets are trying to teach us it means to be God's people. And so I want to I just very quickly go through each of these three things that, that Micah calls us to here. 
uh, they are they are three snapshots of the same thing. So there's not need for excuse me for a particular order. Uh, and so I want to just deal with each of the three. Okay, first he says he's shown you what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to love kindness. And I'm not really sure why the ESV chose to translate the word kindness. It's a terrible translation. Uh, there's even if you if you have, if you have an ESV Bible. And you look down at the footnote, you'll see that there's a footnote that says, or steadfast love. And that is the more consistent translation of the Hebrew word, which is the Hebrew word chesed. Uh, which has no English equivalent. That's part of the problem. Is There's no one English word that can kind of define all that this word means. It's, it's one of these, I mean, it is one of these beautiful, massive words in the Old Testament scriptures that means something like mercy or steadfast love is how it is typically translated, both in the NIV and the ESV. But it means so much more than that. It means covenant, solidarity, or loyalty. Uh, One commentator says it refers to the moral bondage of love, that there's a covenantal relationship that binds people together, much like marriage. So first the word describes a commitment, a, a covenant bond, a loyalty. So remember last week we said, you know, part of the call to mercy and generosity is to recognize one another in our need as brothers and sisters who have claims. We have claims upon one another. We've been bound together by our common faith in Jesus Christ. There's a covenant bond that exists between us. And so there's a need for, and there's a call to commitment to one another, a covenant bond, a loyalty, but not just, not just loyalty, but it's a durable. The word really means a durable or a lasting loyalty. The ESV translates it steadfast love, a love that endures, right? A love that never gives up or goes away, a love that pushes past every offense or resistance. And so my translation is, we're called to a stubborn love. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in a wedding that he did with some people in his church, he, he said to them, from this time forward, the covenant that you make today sustains the love and not the love of the covenant. In other words, that, that's what that word hesed really means. It means to become a people who refuse to give up on one another. No matter what happens, no matter how badly we offend one another, no matter how, you know, whether we forget, you know, whether your church forgets your name on the day you're supposed to join it. You say, I'm not going to give up on this people because I'm bound to them. I'm, not, I'm going to push through every reason I might have to quit. That there's this bond or to be a people who love a city like Winter Haven or Lake Wales or Haines City and refuse to walk away from the problems of the city who pass up job opportunities that would move us other places for the sake of multi-generational ministry in a city. Say, I'm not going to give up on this place. That's this idea of chesed. This stubborn loyalty and love. And to love mercy then will lead you to do justice, as the prophet says. And biblically, these two words, righteousness and justice, go together. And righteousness means right or straight or fully what it should be. Something uh, that is or does what, is, what it is supposed to be and do. It means to be whole. And this is connected to the biblical idea of shalom, this idea of peace and flourishing that Jonathan prayed for a few minutes ago. And so to do justice means that when shalom begins to break down, when sin and selfishness and corruption and greed begin to corrupt human communities so that the strong begin to take advantage of the weak and there's oppression that begins to happen or the fatherless and the widows are not cared for but they're taken advantage of or the weak and the poor and the needy are not helped but they're crushed and they're destroyed and to do justice means that you intervene that you step in and you use whatever influence or money or resources you have to bring things back into conformity with righteousness and shalom. To do justice means to restore broken community, to correct oppression, to side with the poor and the widow, 
because they're without an advocate. So specifically, a righteous person is, a just person is a person who disadvantages himself for the sake of the community. A wicked person is a person who, who sees their money and their resources as just belonging to them. So to do justice is to go to the places in our city where shalom is breaking down and to plunge whatever time and energy and money and resources we might have into those places. Do justice, he says. But then thirdly, walk in humility. And so to show chesed, to commit to loving others to my own hurt, right, requires incredible humility. To do justice, this willing, willingly disadvantaging myself for the sake of other people, I mean, to do that requires humility too. It means to live unselfishly, to not always be thinking about yourself, worrying about yourself, using your time and your energy and resources to take care of yourself. The biblical idea of this is just self-forgetfulness, a people who do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself, right? This self-forgetfulness. And this, this is the kind of person, the prophets say, is a person who's come face to face, who've had a true encounter with the grace of God. People who do these sorts of things, who show chesed, who love to their own hurt, who are willing to plunge their life and their time and their resources into the areas where justice is unraveling, where, where righteousness is unraveling and bring it back to a state of justice, who walk not making much of themselves, but really self-forgetful, not really even thinking about themselves, but, but making the aim and the goal of their life the care of other people. Now, one last thing, and then I'm done. Why these three things, then? Why these three things? Why are justed and hesed and humility, the evidences of a heart that have been changed by the gospel. And I would just answer the question like this. It's because they're the very things we learn about God and the gospel. Right? So the psalmist sings in verse 5 of, of Psalm 33, which we read for our call to worship, the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord, the chesed of the Lord. Micah hangs all of his hopes for forgiveness and salvation on the promise that God will show steadfast love. To his people, and that really is the story of the scriptures. That no matter how stubborn or unwilling or unrelenting or rebellious we prove to be, the Lord refuses to give up on us over and over again. Through the prophets, God says, You are stiff necked people. We don't listen, we don't obey, we are unbelievably stubborn. But the good news is that in Jesus, God is more stubborn in his love towards us than we are in our disobedience towards him. His love for us outlasts our ingratitude and stubbornness. He shows steadfast love. He, can I just, if, you're, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then no matter how bad you blow it, no matter how far you run away, God will never, he refuses to quit on you. We may quit on him, but he won't quit on us. Okay, so ultimately it was his hesed love that sent Jesus into the world to save us. It was Jesus' unflinching commitment to us that caused him to lay aside the prerogatives of his divinity and take upon himself human flesh and bone, right? Of all the things that I marvel at when I think of God, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his omniscience, all those omnis, the thing that I can't get over that is revealed in Jesus about him is his unbelievable humility. And then also Jesus came to work justice. He came to set the world right. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne, we're told. So you see, these are the things that are being revealed. So do you struggle to show hesed love? I mean, do you give up on people too easily? Yes. 
And what we need is we need to see God and Jesus refusing to give up on us despite all the reasons he has to do so. And when you and I come to know his chesed love towards us, then it will empower us to show that kind of love towards others. Are you arrogant and selfish? (laughs) Do you do things from selfish ambition? You know, if humility is self-forgetfulness, if it's not thinking about yourself but thinking about others and making their needs the most important thing, it's you before me. I mean, is that hard? That's a silly question. Of course it is. So how do you become like that? Well, you've got to look at Jesus, who was God and gave up everything, who was the creator of heaven and earth, who holds in his lungs the breath of life, the one who holds the universe together by his power, became nothing, the scripture teaches. Nothing. Can you even fathom that? He was all-powerful and he became weak. He was rich and he became poor. And if you see him laying aside the prerogatives of his divinity to come and serve you, then it will make you willing to lay aside your prerogatives to serve others. See, I mean, this is the way this works, right? Do you see this? A just person, last, last one and then we're done, is a person who disadvantages himself for the sake of the community. An unjust person is a person who advantages himself at the expense of the community. I mean, do you struggle to be just? If so, look to Jesus. He took no account of himself, but absorbed in us our needs, our misery, our helplessness. He right? I mean, ultimately disadvantaged himself. He died. And when you see him dying for you, you'll be energized to go and die so others can live. Right? This is the way the gospel works. He's shown you, oh man, what is good. How do you come before the Lord? What does the Lord require of you? To do justice. To love kindness. To walk humbly before God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we need you to come and uh, work in our hearts uh, in all the ways that we are still tempted to divorce our, our faith in you and our commitment to serve you from uh, a commitment to love and to serve others. We are so prone to the error that the prophets are exposing of, of making our faith in you a matter of religious ceremonies and offerings and services and religious commitments and not making it a matter of our love and care for the poor and the needy. Forgive us. Would you come uh, today and in the weeks to come and in uh, every moment of our lives and make known to us the beauty of your love for us in Christ Jesus that we might come face to face with your grace. Uh, I pray this so that our hearts might be melted uh, by the sight of such a love and that in our hearts be melted that we might become people the kind of people that Micah speaks of who, in fact, do do justice and love mercy and walk humbly. Form us uh, as that kind of people that you might gain glory through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Images that you saw during that song are just some ways that our church in the first few years of its uh, life together has tried to just work out some of these things in Micah 6.8 to go uh, to places like uh, Nicaragua and Uganda and to the parts of our city that where the fabric of shalom is unraveling and to plunge ourselves and our lives and our time and our resources in those places uh, to do the work of justice and to show mercy and to walk humbly. And so as you go, uh, wherever the Lord might send you, I remind you of the promise of Psalm 89, verse 15. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face. And that is exactly the promise of the benediction. Uh, If your faith is in Jesus Christ, then as you go, uh, he promises to go with you and to pour out all of his blessing.
and provision upon your life, uh, that you might be reckless in your generosity and love towards others. So receive this benediction. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. Thank mm-hmm. you.